Welcome to the Navigating Cancer Together podcast. My name is Talea Dendi. I'm an 11-year cancer thriver, cancer doula, and owner of On the Other Side. I use my experience to help others get on the other side of cancer. Gaps between the guidance, emotional support, and education that are needed and what one receives can be huge. This podcast fills those gaps by sharing stories, resources, and information about all things related to cancer and wellness. I interview guests from all walks of life who are living with cancer, caregivers, and those who are thriving on the other side. Also, I talk with organizations, healthcare professionals, and experts in the health and wellness spaces who offer complimentary and integrative care. Join me. We are in this together. Disclaimer, the purpose of this podcast is to educate and to inform. The podcast is provided on the understanding that it does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. It is not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or other qualified medical professionals and is not intended for the use in the diagnosis or treatment of individual conditions. Guests who speak in a podcast express their own opinions, experience, and conclusions. Conclusions. Neither Talea Dendi, Navigating Cancer Together, On the Other Side, LLC, nor any of its affiliates endorses, supports, or opposes any treatment option or other matter discussed in a podcast. The mention of any product, service, organization, activity, or therapy on a podcast should not be construed as an endorsement. Hello, everyone. This is Talea Dendi from OnTheOtherSide.life, and you're listening to the Navigating Cancer Together podcast, the show that has something for everyone facing cancer. Why? Because everyone is different with different needs, beliefs, and perspectives. Thank you for joining us for this episode. I encourage you to open your minds and your hearts. Today, our very special guest is Dr. David Stewart. Dr. Stewart trained in medical oncology at MD Anderson Hospital in Houston from 1976 to 1978. He then joined the staff at MD Anderson. Later, he returned to Ottawa, Canada in 1980, moved back to MD Anderson in 2003, but then again moved back to Ottawa, Canada in 2011 as professor of medicine and head of the Division of Medical Oncology. Since completing his term as division head in 2019, Dr. Stewart has continued to teach and practice oncology in Ottawa. He currently wrote a book called A Short Primer on Why Cancer Still Sucks. It is intended for cancer patients, other members of the public, and non-oncology healthcare professionals. Dr. Stewart, thank you so much for joining us today and welcome. Thank you very much for having me. I very much appreciate this. It's my pleasure. And I agree, cancer still sucks. So thank you for writing that book, Dr. Stewart. Just about everyone knows someone who has been diagnosed with cancer. It is also impacting more younger people. Why is cancer so common, Dr. Stewart? Well, actually, the number one factor driving cancer is just getting one day older because every day that you're alive, about 100 billion cells divide because you've got about 37 trillion cells in your body. With 100 billion cells dividing, there's an average of three mutations 
per cell division. So every one of us has an average of about 300 billion new mutations in our body every day, which is a phenomenal number. And the good news is that most of them can be repaired, those mutations, or they're of no consequence. Or they'll, if they cannot be repaired, then the cell may be induced to undergo what's called apoptosis, where it commits suicide. So it cannot pass on those changes to progeny cells, to daughter cells. Or the cells can become senescent, so they're still alive, but they're no longer able to divide. Despite all those things, a few of them may escape with significant mutations that can then lead to the development of cancer. And the older you are, the higher the risk that you will have developed some of these mutations that can lead to cancer. So some people will develop enough mutations when they're very young, but that's not common. But so it's just by chance that that happens. But the longer you live and the higher the probability. And so that's why the risk of cancer goes higher and higher the older you get. And also as we become better at controlling other diseases, that means that more patients survive longer so then they have the opportunity to develop cancer so that the risk of dying from heart disease, for example, is going down as treatments become better for that. But that just means that more people live longer and are then able to develop cancer. Thank you, Dr. Stewart, for explaining that. So basically, cell division and mutations and just simply getting a day older, those are all common factors and more cancer occurrences. Yep, that's it. Dr. Stewart, what are a few common oncology myths or legends? There's a whole bunch of them out there. I just outlined a few in the book. One is that you shouldn't eat sugar if you've got cancer because the sugar will feed the tumor. There's actually no evidence of that. It is true that cancers need sugar, but if you stop eating it, they'll just make their own. And what they do is actually the way that cancer causes weight loss in patients with cancer. One way is because it actually breaks down the muscle in your body and breaks down other tissues to create sugar. So even if you don't eat any, the cancer will have lots and lots of sugar so that not eating sugar does not help you should end cancer. It is true that if you eat a lot of sugar or eat a lot of calories of any kind, that does increase your risk of getting cancer initially, but that's because it increases the number of cell divisions in your body. And so it increases the number of mutations just because you're having more cell divisions. So that's one common myth. Another common myth is that you need a large randomized clinical trial to be able to tell whether treatment works or not. And you do need randomized clinical trials under some circumstances, but there are other circumstances where you do not. For example, if a drug given by itself will cause tumor shrinkage in a high proportion of patients, you do not need a randomized clinical trial to say that drug is effective. Just the fact that it can cause tumor shrinkage in a high proportion of patients on its own is enough to tell you that drug is effective. Another one is the impact of the blood-brain barrier in treatment of patients with tumors in the brain. So we know that the blood-brain barrier is real. It's something that actually keeps toxins out of the brain so that your brain's not constantly poisoned by things in your diet or things that you're eating, etc. Actually, chemotherapy drugs only reach low concentrations in the normal brain. But if there's a tumor there, the blood-brain barrier is broken down in that area. And that's why if somebody has a tumor in the brain, if, you do, if they have a, an MRI scan, you give some contrast eye into the vein, it goes into the tumor. It goes in there because the blood-brain barrier is broken down there. And also the swelling around tumors, so-called edema, is there because the blood-brain barrier is largely disrupted in tumors in the brain. We did a lot of research many years ago that showed that the concentration of drugs in tumors in the brain is as high as the concentration in tumors in other parts of the body, even if the concentration in the brain itself is low. There have been a whole bunch of different things that have happened in the way that data are interpreted. 
as that has resulted in a high proportion of oncologists believing very firmly that the blood-brain barrier is important in treating the tumors in the brain. And if the drug does not cross the intact blood-brain barrier, it will not work against tumors in the brain. But in fact, the data simply do not support that. People find ways of just including half the data, not the other half. So very selective inclusion of some data, not others, to make it look like the blood-brain barrier is important. But in fact, it's not. The reason this is important is because many clinical trials exclude patients with brain metastases. And this is particularly important in lung cancer, where one quarter of the patients with metastatic disease may have brain metastases. So they may be excluded from the clinical trial. And so that slows completion of the study because decreasing the number of potential patients by 25% and also denies those patients access to treatment that could help them. The other big problem is that some of the studies say that if the patient has tumors and brain metastases, that you have to give radiation to the brain first and then watch them for four weeks or so before they can go on the clinical trial. And the big problem with that is that a patient may have small asymptomatic brain metastases, but large liver metastases that are life-threatening, and the patient to maybe have their the treatment of their liver metastases delayed for four or five weeks while they undergo radiation to the brain for tumors that they did not have to have treated that way. Because of the treatment that they were going to give the chemotherapy or target therapy or immunotherapy, if it was going to work anywhere, it will work everywhere. So in fact, actually, so the myth can lead to direct mismanagement of patients where systemic therapy is delayed while they get radiation to the brain and then are watched for a period of time before they go on the clinical trial. And my personal feeling is that that's bad for patient health, for patient management, and that this should not be happening. So those are just a few of the many cancer myths and legends that have impacted how we do things, that we need to keep our eyes open and keep on being prepared to question what we believe to be fact and look at things in different ways. I certainly agree with that, Dr. Stewart. There is a lot of misinformation out there. So it's very important for people to do their research and make sure they truly understand what is happening when it comes to oncology and cancer care. Dr. Stewart, as someone who has done research on clinical trials, as you mentioned, what are your thoughts on how the disparities in access to clinical trials can be improved? Yes, this is a huge problem because the research suggests that as many as 70% of patients would be willing to take part in a clinical trial if it was offered to them. And yet fewer than 5% of adults across North America ever do take part in a clinical trial. 5% of adults with cancer do take part in a clinical trial. And there are many reasons for this. One is that there aren't enough clinical trials or they're open for too short a period of time or the eligibility criteria are way too strict. For example, again, exclusion of patients with brain metastases from clinical trials does not make biological sense. It does not make clinical research sense. And yet that many patients are excluded from it based on the presence of brain metastases. Or there can be other things. If a patient has had a prior, another prior cancer before, they may be excluded from the clinical trial. And that rarely makes sense because clinically you usually can tell if a patient has two different cancers, if they're having tumor progression, we can usually tell which one causes the problem. And so those are all problems. One of the reasons that there are not enough clinical trials, it takes way too long to open up a clinical trial. So it can take years to get a study activated. Or the study may just be activated in other sites and not where the individual patient, they're going for the treatment. This is a major problem that there's not wider access across multiple sites. So one place that this can really impact things, there can be, so for example, there might be a clinical trial that is good for patients, for example, with a ROS1 mutation in lung cancer. That's only present in 1% of patients so that many centers will not see any patients. So it might take two years to get the protocol up and running and open and cost a lot of money. And then you might not see any patients with that mutation. So that's 
wasted time and effort. On the other hand, you might have a patient with a ROS1 mutation and you will not have a protocol open. Then by the time you get it open, it's too late for that patient. So we need a system, what I call just-in-time study activation. Whereas if you've got that patient with that mutation that needs that study, you can go online and you can immediately activate the study at your site and get the patient on that clinical trial. Some people say, well, just send the patient to a center that has a study open. But in some cases, that means that patient having to move somewhere else, very expensive, very disruptive to their life to do that. And we need things to make it much easier to get patients on clinical trials. Thank you, Dr. Stewart, for explaining that. And it truly helps me understand better why it takes so long to develop new anti-cancer drugs. Is there anything else that we can do, Dr. Stewart, to improve that time span for developing those drugs? Yeah, so it's, it takes an average of 12 years from drug discovery until drug approval. And the reason it takes so long is because of the what I refer to as speed bumps on the drug development highway. Every one of those speed bumps is there for a reason. It's because a problem came up that to try to avoid the problem or to solve the problem, and new regulations were put in place that then slow things down. So the analogy I use is you're on the highway and you've had too many traffic accidents where people got killed. So to make it safer, you put a whole bunch of speed bumps in that slow things down. So you got a speed limit of five miles per hour. And that unequivocally gets rid of that, reduces the number of people killed in traffic accidents. It also means that you cannot get to where you want to go and cost you far more. And so often you don't set up on the trip at all because it's just going to take too long. And so these speed bumps, they are what slow things down. Not only are they what slow things down, they radically increase the cost of developing a new drug. And if it costs a lot more to develop the new drug, those costs have to be recouped after the drug is marketed. So they are a direct contributing factor to the very, very high prices that are charged for anti-cancer drugs. So this is a big problem. So I use the analogy of the Autobahn in Germany, and I don't know whether you've ever driven on the Autobahn. No. The Autobahn in, okay, the Autobahn in Germany has unlimited speed limits. So when my wife were there a few years ago, rented a nice Audi, we'd be driving along 100 miles an hour, and cars would be passing us going 140 miles an hour. But this was very safe. It's got one of the lowest traffic fatality rates in Europe because it's got smart regulation, and it's got good roads, good cars, good drivers, and smart regulation. And that's what we need is we need smart regulation that does prevent the problems that we've run into in the past that have given rise to the need for regulation. But we need smart regulation that will safeguard patient safety and will safeguard patient data integrity, but will permit very rapid progress. We know that this is possible because we've seen two major examples of it. We saw the example with AIDS drugs, where the all the speed bumps in the development of AIDS drugs, the population became angry and they insisted that this be changed. And almost immediately, we got very rapid approval of AIDS drugs that were very safe and very effective. So markedly cut down in the amount of time it took to develop those AIDS drugs. The other recent experience was with COVID. For COVID, the fastest vaccine we ever had developed was the mumps vaccine. It took about four years to develop it. And most other vaccines took, again, seven, eight, 10, 12 years to develop. But with COVID, there was consensus that we needed something much faster. And so we got to new vaccines that were safe and effective within one year. So if we apply the same principles in cancer, I don't think we'll ever be able to develop a new anti-cancer drug in one year. But I think we can develop them in just two or three or four years rather than the 12 years that it currently requires. And all it takes is prioritization. We just have to say that this is a top priority, that we must do this much, much faster. As soon as we make it a top priority, then we start figuring out ways around all these speed bumps that we've got and how to maintain those same safety things, data integrity things, but to make everything happen much faster. We just need to really prioritize speed in development of new anti-cancer therapies. And I point out that like with COVID, somewhere about one or one and a half percent of patients who developed COVID die from it. 
And with cancer, about 34, 35, 36% of all people who develop cancer die from it. So this is a much bigger problem. Five, in the period of time since we've had COVID, five times as many people have died of cancer as have died of COVID. So that we must find new ways of making things happen much faster. It's in everybody's best interest, and it would be the number one way of bringing down the cost of these drugs as well. Yes, I agree. It needs to be a priority. And it's something that the government has been talking about before I was even born. Let's eradicate cancer. The White House Moonshot Initiative is a step in the right direction, but it by itself will not be enough. The FDA, with its breakthrough drug designation, is a step in the right direction, but it will not be enough. So in the past, when I've published on this, people have accused me of giving the FDA a rough time and blaming the FDA. But this is not the FDA's fault. This is our fault. We have to give our governments permission to move quickly. We have to tell our governments that from our perspective, this is what we need. This is what we want to happen. So that our top priority as a people is for our governments to move rapidly to get these new treatments to us as fast as they can. Part of the reason that they move slowly is in the past when there was a problem. So like the Vioxx scandal several years ago, Congress held hearings where they drag regulators across the carpet and say, how did you let this happen? You let this dangerous drug through. This is your fault. So the regulators react to that by creating more speed bumps. So Congress has to instead drag them across the carpet and say, why is it taking so long? What are you doing to make things happen as fast as possible? So we have to give a government permission to do this, and the government overall has to give regulators permission to do that. If they do that, we can do it. We can make things happen a lot faster. Thank you for explaining that. That took me back to what you said earlier, Dr. Stewart, about the uproar from the AIDS community when they were needing those drugs and developing those drugs and how that helped to push things through so quickly. A person here in Canada, somebody called Louise Binder. So she developed AIDS many years ago and she became an AIDS activist. And then she became a cancer activist. What she said to me is that one of the problems with cancer patients is that they're just too polite. The AIDS patients are mad and they made sure that things moved quickly. Cancer patients are just too polite and they're not insisting that things move quickly. And so this needs to change. They have to get on board to make sure that things move quickly. I like that, Dr. Stewart. One thing that I just thought about as well, I am finding that many people, once they are almost done with treatment or they're done with treatment, they're not given survivorship care plans. In 2011, I was given, thankfully, a survivorship care plan. But in 2022, people are still not getting those, Dr. Stewart. Why is that? There are so many more things that we could do than what we're doing right now. So many more things. So survivorship plans for people that have had treatment for a potentially curable cancer, they can be very helpful and very reassuring to the patient just to know that they've got that backup. But there's lack of a universal approach to that. That survivorship plan that you got, that's very important. In our center, we've got survivorship programs for breast cancer and colon cancer, but not for lung cancer. Part of that is because there's a lot more people that are potentially cured of breast cancer and colon cancer. So the need is far greater there. Fewer patients that are cured of lung cancer, so less of a push there. But it's something that is a general overall rule that could help. One of the issues is that family doctors learn to treat many things. So they can cover, they can provide a lot of the heart medications, high blood pressure medications, things like that. They get far less training in cancer. And so family doctors often do not feel comfortable doing this. But a good survivorship program, it can tell a family doctor exactly what they have to do in following up a patient with a prior diagnosis of cancer to make sure that they get the proper testing and follow-up that they need. Thank you so much for explaining that. That is very helpful and very important. So I would really love to see that across the board. Dr. Stewart, of course, we know there's differences between the Canadian and American healthcare systems. What are some pros and cons of the American versus the Canadian healthcare systems? 
Okay, so I've worked in both. I worked a total of about 12 years in the American system and more than 30 years in the Canadian system. As I point out in chapter 14 of my book, I love them both and I hate them both. They both have major pluses and major minuses. The major problem with the American system is that the lack of access for young people that do not have insurance. And it's one of the reasons that despite the United States having the most expensive healthcare system in the world, the average are only 49th in average life expectancy. So they're barely ahead of Albania with respect to average life expectancy. And this is because of the fact there are too many young people that die of things they did not have to die from because they do not have access to insurance or other things like that. Once an American is age 65 and gets Medicare, that's gold-plated. That's really good. But before that, if they do not have a job that provides them with insurance, uh, they can have a major problem. This is why the United States has one of the highest maternal death rates in the Western world, uh, why it has one of the highest infant death rates in the Western world, is because of underinsurance of young people. But they do pretty good with things that happen to older people like cancer. Canada does better than the United States in treating young people, but not as well as the United States in treating older people. And part of that also is in the way it's funded. In the United States with insurance companies, insurance companies try to limit costs by requiring prior authorization for things. And also to physician, because of all the insurance companies, they need to spend a huge amount of money to send different bills to different insurance companies because they all have different forms to fill out. When we moved down to Houston in 2003, my wife was amazed at the number of people that were working in the average doctor's office, but most of them were to deal with insurance companies. Whereas in a Canadian office, it might be a clinic with, with 10 different physicians, but they'll just have one nurse that they share and one receptionist that they share because everything is much more efficient from the payment perspective. And we do not have to get prior authorization for anything. We don't have to call it the insurance company. Now, the government makes it tough because they don't have enough CAT scanners or specialists or things like that. So then it takes too long to get access to those things, but it's not something that we have to call insurance companies. But this is the reason that it costs five times as much per person, just the administrative cost of healthcare in the United States as it does in Canada. So it's one of the few instances where a government-run system is more cost-effective than a non-government-run system, just because of these administrative costs that contribute to the fact that, again, healthcare costs are much higher in the United States than they are in Canada despite a lot of people in the United States not having coverage. The problem we run into in Canada is that we don't have enough CAT scanners or MRI scanners or specialists or a whole bunch of other things. The systems we have are very efficient, but there's just not enough of them. So our CAT scanners might be running 24 hours a day or our MRIs. People might have to go in at 3 o'clock in the morning to get their routine MRI scan because we don't have enough of the scanners. So this is the way that we try to cope with it. But it means that in the United States, it might only take one week for somebody to get started on cancer treatment, or it might take three or four weeks for a Canadian to get started. So three or four weeks does not sound like a lot, but it can make a difference in individual patients. It's one of the reasons that in the United States, if you look at all patients with cancer, about 67% of people overall will survive cancer. In Canada, it's about 63 or 64%. That may not look like a big difference, but that translates into uh, about 8,000 Canadians who die of cancer who might not have died of it if they'd had the same rapid access to treatment as in the United States. On the other hand, Canadians do not go bankrupt from paying for cancer treatment. So that's almost unheard of that that happens, whereas it's not rare at all for it to happen in the United States. Also in Canada, my patients who come to see me with metastatic lung cancer, they can go off work immediately and all their health care is covered and they'll often get some disability pay as well. When I was down in Houston, I'd have patients with widespread metastatic disease dragging themselves into work every day until mm -hmm. two or three weeks before they died, because if they did not do that, they would lose their insurance and their families would be devastated by their health care costs over the last few weeks of their life. Is one right or wrong? One wrong? No, they're just different. So what I say is that any Americans who want the Canadian system 
not wrong system. Any Canadians want the American system, not the wrong system. <laughs> Neither of the systems has got it right. So we need to do things differently where people, all patients can get rapid access. So in the American system, if they had universal access for younger patients like they do for older people, then it would be a much better system. But still a lot of things would have to be done to reduce administrative costs. But just getting the insurance companies out of the, out of the way could radically reduce administrative costs and speed things up for people. In the Canadian system, the government is providing things. We just need the government to provide more of what it provides. Thank you, Dr. Stewart, for summarizing that and pointing out those stark pros and cons of each system. Very important for people to understand and know what they're getting into when they enter the healthcare system and being aware of some of those potential barriers. Based on everything that you know, Dr. Stewart, what you've shared so far, what does the future hold for cancer care? Okay, we know that there's going to be rapid advances. We know that because of the rapid advances that have been happening. So that as long as nothing happens to actually stop research or slow down research, there will continue to be very rapid advances. And so I pointed out in the book that when I was doing my training at Darcy Cancer Center in 1976, the head of the department, Dr. Emil J. Freireich, one of the most brilliant people I ever met, he had Freireich's laws. And one of Freireich's laws was the only people who come close to predicting the future are the science fiction writers, and they always underpredict rather than overpredict. <laughs> <laughs> and when he told us that, none of us thought we'd be walking around with phones in our pocket or that we would no longer need a map because a computer in a car would be talking to a satellite. That was science fiction. But essentially, if we can imagine it, then there's at least a possibility that we can do it. The important thing is being able to imagine it and then try to accomplish those things. For example, right now, people who have surgical removal of a cancer may receive adjuvant chemotherapy afterwards to reduce the risk of the cancer coming back. Five or 10 years from now, we will no longer be doing that. Instead, we'll be going for a blood test that we'll be looking for circulating tumor cells. And if we find them, then we know the cancer is going to come back. And so that patient needs some treatment. So chemotherapy or something else. If we find no tumor cells, there'll be a high probability that the cancer is not going to come back. So the patient will not need uh, adjuvant treatment. Those are just examples of some things. There'll be new drugs. So there's a new class of drug called bispecific T-cell engagers or bites that as an antibody with one arm directed against an immune cell, a T cell, the other arm directed against the cancer cell so that it can actually guide the T cell in close to the tumor cell so the T cell can kill the tumor cell. Right now, these are very difficult to make, but in the future, I see a time when they'll be off the shelf. So you'll have your tumor biopsy. The system will immediately be able to tell what unique antigens that your tumor cells have, and they'll just be able to attach the warhead then to a pre-existing bispecific T cell engager that will then personalize that for your cancer cells. So the technology is already there for us to be able to do these types of things, but it's going to take us maybe 10, 20 years before we'll be able to really make it work. But this is the type of thing that in the future will personalize the therapy for you. Thank you, Dr. Stewart. I have started hearing about the blood tests. I think that will make a huge difference going forward. I'm really looking forward to those changes. Before we end, please tell us what inspired you to write your book, Why Cancer Still Sucks, and what do you want readers to get from your book? If people want to get a copy of the book, Amazon Books is the easiest way to do that. Or you can go to my website, whycancerstillsucks.com, but to either of those to get the book. The thing that inspired me were two factors. One was that my patients have always told me that the more information they have, the better. They've often told me that, that uncertainty is worse than bad news. Mm-hmm. If they know what they're facing, then they can deal with it. But the uncertainty kills people. It, it makes things very difficult. It creates a huge amount of anxiety. And so it was really to inform. And also, the more I would tell my patients, the more they would thank me for it. So uh, the book just has a 
whole bunch of things that I would routinely tell patients to give them the information that they need to guide their choices for treatment and for their life. So that was the one reason. The other is the systems issues, how to get treatments to patients much faster. Because for a number of years, I've been writing papers on the things that need to be done to get drugs much faster, and yet they've accomplished very little. So I was hoping that if I could spell it out in the book, in chapters 11 to 14, that people would then understand and that maybe somebody out there would take this and, and light that fire, light the spark to get them to figure out how to make everything work much faster, to just start the movement to, as I said, in chapter 12, it's call to action to get things to happen much faster. So if each person tells their elected representatives that uh, this is very important to them and uh, we need to prioritize rapid access, then we can do it. We just have to make this the top priority of our governments. Thank you so much, Dr. Stewart. I'm so happy that you wrote this book because it covers so many very important topics, maybe topics that people haven't even thought about. And we do need to get this moving forward. I want to encourage people to visit Dr. Stewart's website, whycancerstillsucks.com. And as Dr. Stewart mentioned, you can purchase his book on Amazon. Before we end today, Dr. Stewart, is there anything else you would like to share? No, just that cancer is a really tough disease, but we just have to keep moving forward. And we're in a far different place than we were 40-some years ago when I started my training. So we've come a long piece. We still have a long piece to go, and we'll just keep plugging along. Thank you, Dr. Stewart, for everything that you do to help cancer patients, all your work in the oncology space. And most importantly, thank you for your time. I know you're a busy man. Thank you again for having me. Absolutely. I would like to give a shout out to the listeners. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please share, follow, or subscribe so that you can find my podcast and listen again. That is it for this Wednesday. And until next time, let's keep navigating cancer together. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of Navigating Cancer Together. I hope you enjoyed it. Please be sure to subscribe. And if you enjoyed the show, please share or tell your friends and family about it. For notes from the show and previous episodes, visit ontheotherside.life and check out the podcast section. I would love it if you joined us for the next episode. Talk to you soon.